Well, hello everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast 219. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's guest, Bartho Serrano, is here. She'll be with us in about five minutes. But before we get to say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do all this because we love poetry, and I know you do too. So please click the like button and share, subscribe, leave reviews on iTunes especially. That's helped a lot with our rankings on iTunes. Really appreciate all those recent reviews. Uh, whatever you can do to help spread poetry around the internet would be much appreciated. Um, now, uh, we have uh, Poet Respond we like to start out with. The poet Devin Balwit uh, couldn't be here tonight, but she has a wonderful sonnet and on the theme that we've had so much lately, of course, which is um, the ongoing war. Um, between Israel and Hamas. Um, and um, this was um, inspired by a simile from a poem in Kyla Koki's um, Matthew 628 in Poetry Magazine, the newest issue. Um, so she was inspired by that and sort of spun off on this. Um, and she says it's for all those called to be first responders. So let's give this poem a listen. Again, this is Devin Balwit. I think it's her uh, 13th time in Poetry Respond. She's one of those wonderful people who sends a poem every week and pretty much has been for, I don't know, 10, 12 years or however long we've been doing Poetry Respond. So it's really, we appreciate that. And she writes these wonderful uh, slant rhyme sonnets all the time. So I just love this poem. Let's give it a listen. This is Devin Balwit once again with War Sonnet. War sonnet with a simile borrowed from Kyle Okoke's Matthew 628. Chest like a trapdoor and me a medic, parachuting in, leaning over the body, shattered on the rubbled road, I listen to the heart ticking like unexploded ordnance, hoping to delay the surd that is death, to deny its nothingness purchase. Me a robber with my pressure bandages, codeine and comfort, my eight-week training scarcely enough to differentiate me from the gawkers who lean in to get a better view of someone else's tragedy. What can I do other than crudely splint the broken bones, halt the pulse of blood until the surgeon can do her work? Only a stopgap. Still, I throw myself there where the line of being and not being wavers. And once again, that was uh, Devin Balwit with uh, War Sonnet with a simile borrowed from Kyla Koki's Matthew 628. A uh, powerful poem from this Sunday's uh, Poets Respond. Uh, now, after we've heard that, we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest, Parto Serrano. So we will be right back with more poetry. Sit tight, and I'll be right back. And we're back. Now, today's main guest is Parto Serrano. Um, she's made her home in a bamboo hut in India, a 150-year-old farmhouse in Maine, a spiritual community in Oregon, and for the past 23 years, a funky upstairs duplex north of the Golden Gate Bridge. Along with painting and poetry, Parto has dabbled in such art forms as taxi driver, family therapist, phys ed instructor at Cornell University, house cleaner, single parent, head cook, amateur singer, songwriter, illustrator, and palm reading psychic at various Catskill resorts. So that's really fun. We'll talk about a lot of that. Um, she's author of the award-winning collections Indian Rope Trick, which I read and really enjoyed. I recommend that book for sure. Um, Elephant Raga and Call from Paris. And is author and illustrator of the Ippy-winning gift book, Causing a Stir, The Secret Lives and Loves of Kitchen Utensils. Pareto's other published works include a poetry chapbook, um, music CDs, a whole bunch of other things, the book of essays, Everyday Miracles, an A to Z guide to the simple wonders of life. Her most recent and beautiful book is right here, Starfall in the Temple, which was just released by Blue Light Press. She's 
also founder of the ongoing poetry series, The Poetic Pilgrimage, Poem Making as Spiritual Practice, now online. And here she is. Yeah. Hey, Pertha, how you doing? It's great to see you. I'm great. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for the introduction. Yeah, it's just, it's, I'm so happy to see you. You're one of those poets that you're, you're sort of always, uh, there's always a good poem there when your poems appear mm. in our submission folder. I mean, you're just with a lot of variety and a lot of interest. And it's really, uh, it's really fun to hear. And it's, it's fun to uh, meet you tonight. It's great, yeah, because you you were one of my first publishers, actually, from many years back. Oh, I didn't and know that. That's always great to hear. I, I really love that. And, and last week, too. So it's always nice. It's one of my favorite things that we get to sort of springboard people into big careers, which is uh, what you've definitely mm-hmm. done with all these great books. Uh-huh. Um, let's start out with uh, one of the early poems from this new book, and that is uh, Mirrored Palace. Okay. <clears throat> Mirrored Palace. If we're honest... As we look in, dear reader, don't we come upon a certain sorrow that is ours to carry, a dark and sacred something we might call gravitas? And if we allow ourselves a sidewise glance, don't we sometimes catch a shy but insistent light that bends, one might even say bows, to that dark seed? Forgive me then as I wonder which came first, Einstein's thoughts about gravity warping space or his bearing witness to his own sorrow as it bent the light. Which came first, the quiet depths as we humans have always sensed around us or the matter scientists have finally brought to light, the incalculable darkness that holds it all. The human heart has its secret knowings, the brain its fondness for fashion and fad. There was a time when great thinkers saw fairies, kept leather-bound ledgers with drawings and dates. But the poles shifted, and we were turned from those iridescent ones toward functional gray. We're asked to refrain from the sidewise glance, to retrain our visions to timepiece, engine, and grid, to pull up our bootstraps and take to the tarmacs of reason. We put on corrective lenses. What we once called stars in their falling were recast as rogue bits of dust and ice. Real stars don't fall, they told us. They're held by an absence so dense there's no making heads or tails. But isn't the human brain, the one that construes the paradigms and maps the stars, isn't it the very one that circumnavigates the grocery the very same that falls in love, makes the coffee, does the math. And whether we choose a turtle to ride us through the firmament or prefer it all to pop from a nanoscopic dot, whatever the unlikely tale, who can argue it's done with mirrors? For no matter how deep we dig, we come up facing ourselves. Yeah, that is Mirrored Palace, again, uh, from the new book, Starfall in the Temple by Prato Serrano. And um, it's a great example of the way the poems in the book feel. Um, It's a lot of uh, sort of um, 
you know, there's a lot of science in the book, which kind of surprised me. And I, of course, I love science and, and a lot of just interesting facts and things that spring off into contemplation. And that seems mm. to be something that just comes up so much in the poem. It's sort of like, there, you know, you can read for the poetry or you can read for all the interesting things that you're writing about, too. Um, so so how would you characterize how did this book come together and, and what was the, the theme you had around it? And how did it how did the poems fit together in, in a collection? Well, yeah, that's really interesting because this poem was written uh, at a, um, I got an assignment from one of my fellow writers at a coffee shop when she was looking at my manuscript and she said, what is this book about, Parto? You need to be more direct on this thing. She said, you know, I, you need a few poems that actually speak directly to what you're trying to do. And this poem came out of that. So to me, uh, this poem is kind of, yeah, my answer to Catelyn Fendler, <laughs> my writing partner. And um, so I, I was, though, there were a lot of poems already uh, that were coming. You know, poetry is so interesting. I mean, how does it come? <laughs> a question I just was on tour, a lot of people ask, and it's a hard one to answer, except that uh, I'll be walking a lot of times in, in nature. And I, I sometimes say they're all in my knees, I think, because somehow walking alone, something about the rhythm. I start to hear a voice. It's a different voice than all the chatter that goes on. And it is the contemplations that seem to be happening are all the input I get, uh, you know, listening to the news, reading scientific things, you know, watching what's happening with the web telescope. Uh, you know, it, I love science and, and the probing that's happening. And also, I think, and I think maybe a lot of scientists are feeling this too, that the right side of the brain has been a bit slighted. And, um, you know, that the the part that, well, <laughs> people seeing fairies, that's been a question I've had for a long time, actually, because I've heard that, that uh, it was very common that very educated people saw fairies for a long period, I think, during the 1800s, and even kept notebooks and pictures. And, and I thought, well, what is that? You know, how? Anyway, so what are we missing? That's part of the question. But it does also feel like each um, fact that I come upon, or at least the new theories, feels so much like what it's like to be inside a human being. You know, there's something about the way we're looking at the outside that is so human. <laughs> and um, so that is really a lot of what a lot of these poems are sort of that personal exploration of that you know who are we and how is, does all this connect to what the human consciousness is um so a lot of that but then and then there's other things sort of sprinkled in you know <laughs> but you know they seem to relate i felt I, I got the feeling that this particular collection well it's called in the temple and to me the temple is the vastness is the temple it's no little thing it, it's you don't need a roof for a temple. It's better, you're better off without one, actually. <laughs> so, um, so, Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, too, because you know what you're describing is the reason why I'm interested in poetry myself. It's the, the probing is what you said, but it's the, the way of exploring. It's kind of like its own scientific field or something. But probing inside the sort of the, the symbolic understanding that we spontaneously generate from that right brain, like you said. Um, you know, we have that, which I always bring up, that 
interview with uh, Dr. Ian McGilchrist about the bifurcated brain and the way the two hemispheres are sectioned off and have entirely different motivations and ways of seeing the world. And poetry is that holistic way of seeing outside of language. And then we find a way to put it into language. Um, and I think that's maybe the common thread that, you know, you're reading, which is so interesting and broad, turning into poems um, is a way of exploring sort of outside of the scientific method, you know? Yeah, no, that's exactly it. <laughs> and also, you know, the fact that words are so um, weak in a certain way. Yeah. You know, I always think the, the blah, blah, blah. And yet somehow, uh, somehow there is uh, something that's been possible. Well, I mean, blah, 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 yes. But also one of my great fascinations forever, since I was a child, I think, is the mystery of language itself. You know, the fact that I'm moving my mouth and air is coming up through here and doing something and then a little bit here. And people get something on the other end. And I somehow, it's like these little boats are being sent out on the waters, uh, you know, that are, um, that have feeling and ideas and all through this uh, language. It's quite amazing to me. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. That's a great way to put it. And and I think what we're all doing and, and that the magic of that is what poetry really is. Um, your your um, bio note that we read at the beginning is one of the more interesting ones we've had in a long time on the show, <laughs> going from the, the hut in India, the old farmhouse, the yeah. spiritual community. Um, there yeah. seems to be a kind of seeking there just in the bio, too. Um, can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about how poetry, how and when poetry fit into that you know, that sort of spiritual journey that seems like you've been mm. on, I would have to guess for your whole life. I would say that, you know, when I was, um, I often say this, and it's kind of a strange thing, but one of the first poems that really spoke to me was The Wheelbarrow, you know, by William Carlos Williams. And the fact that it was so much depends upon, and who knows, I was probably in middle school or something, the red wheelbarrow with the rainwater and the chickens. And I was like, Yes, somebody finally gets this, you know. So I, I don't even, you know, it's hard to, it's, it's un, inexplicable, really. But there was some other dimension that could be spoken about. And so I think that's what did it. And when I realized that, I began writing. And I wrote, um, I mean, my very first writings actually were Nancy Drew inspired murder mysteries, actually, when I was really young. But then when I found poetry, um, that really became. In, in large part, what I like to write. Um, and so, yeah, it, it has been. And, and there were certain periods where I was just so busy, like as a single parent, or particularly when I was giving birth, when I gave birth and had children in Maine and lived in this farm. I didn't write a lot during that particular period. But um, then suddenly, actually, when I got divorced, really, it's interesting, uh, it just broke open. And I just started, uh, I was writing with a kid on my knee in the post office <laughs> on a paper bag or something. You know, it just, Suddenly, there it was again. And, um, and, and really, I don't think it ever left. I would say when my first years in India, because I was there many times, six months at a time for probably four years total, uh, but over 10 or 11 year period. Um, but when I was there... Um, I would hear, and they were smaller. Some of these smaller poems I have in this book uh, reflect that. I was making haiku and when I was more in a meditative space, but still these images would just come rushing through. And um, so, yeah. And, and the other thing I do say is, you know, I, 
People ask about my writing practice, and I'm ashamed to admit I don't really have one. <laughs> I walk in the woods. I, you know, I try to listen. I'm writing on paper bags, you know, like I said. So I sometimes feel like uh, my work has been to give birth in the fields. You know, it's just where it happens is, uh, and somehow they keep coming. So. Hmm. And can you tell us more? Because it's it is so fascinating. So that hut, the bamboo hut in India. And the old farmhouse in Maine. How did you go from from the one to the other to the spiritual community in Oregon? Uh, what was that journey like? Well, um, you know, it just was a happening. <laughs> I mean, it was a saying yes. Let me put it that way. Um, when I, I ended up in the farmhouse in Maine with my um, now my ex husband, who is now one of my best friends and continue, has always continued to be one of my best friends, but this moment happened in our lives it was a very intense time both of our sets of parents died within a year and a half so we just suddenly were in the throes of mystery is all i can say really for me that's what it was i was a psychotherapist at the time um, working at a university counseling center in ohio and doing marathon growth groups and you know i I was definitely part of the new age I knew what was it called? <laughs> anyway, you know, it was the the wild stuff we were doing. We were doing bioenergetics and all night marathon groups and stuff like that. And, and I loved it, really. I loved it. But then, when I was faced with um, all these deaths, um, something shifted in me, and I felt like psychology was just not deep enough, really. Uh, the kinds of we were trying to deal with personality, which seemed like it was almost irrelevant. Uh, you know, the the things that personality has to do with (laughs) getting by in the world or whatever, you know, and there was other things. I mean, really, the the thing was, I felt like uh, the deaths, it wasn't the tragedy of it, really. It was more the profundity of it, you know, the fact that we are here (laughs) at all and the fact that we believe every single one of us. And I did start at that time working uh, for hospice, uh, a hospice organization in Maine. And um, so, well, of course, at that time, I, I just got, we have to get from Ohio to Maine, but um, basically, um, we, my ex-husband got a job as a university professor in Maine, and we moved. And that was kind of where uh, some of my deepest probing started happening. And it's interesting, I wasn't writing, like I said, at that point. I was meditating, running in the mornings in the dark, having babies, <laughs> growing vegetables, I don't know, doing a lot of things like that. Um, but then when... Um, he fell in love with another woman, and, and really I was falling in love with something different also, I have to say. And so um, at that point, um, we separated, and I went to India, and he had the kids for a time, for six months. And um, and in India, I lived in a hut, and I, um, <laughs> what to say, <laughs> I explored uh, some incredible depths. I mean, India was a wonderful uh, part of my life. Um, yeah, it's I, I, in the air there, mm-hmm. really. Well, I love that. I mean, you already said, you know, it came about by saying yes. And, I, and we talked a little bit about that um, Cavafy poem with um, um, Jane Hirschfield. Oh, yeah. The, the great no and the great yes, you know. And some people mm. have the great no within them and some people have the great yes within them. And it, it seems like when you say yes to life, all these things happen. And when you say no, it's still the way you are, but but things don't. And um, mm-hmm. so it's fascinating to see, like, your life seems like an example of the great yes. Um, <laughs> do you want to read another poem? Let's read Event Horizons mm-hmm. next. Okay, good. <clears throat> Let's see. Here we go. 
event horizons. A man now, my grandson has moved in downstairs where he wrestles with the angels of amazement and doubt. Our shadows bow to one another as he leaves to drive people to the airport or city jobs. I want to tell him things, but the guardians of pre-dawn won't let a whisper pass at this hour, and I'm asleep again before he comes home. I want to tell him things, but the words have gotten snagged in the brain's frayed cogs. The name, for example, for the lightness that can blow through a heart lift it from the body, and sail it around the world. I want to tell him, too, how the unexpected has a thing for us, how she hides among the pots and pans in wait for our little lives to whistle by, and how nobody ever believes they are old. One day, you and your little old lady sweetheart will make jokes about your slipping disguises over scrambled eggs and toast. Yeah, another great poem, Event Horizons, again, from Starfall in the Temple, the newest book by Parto Sereno. And um, <clears throat> you mentioned already that, that you were looking for something deeper than psychology. And, and mm-hmm. I'm always wondering, because I don't have a lot of experience or know much about the, the actual, like, meditate, like, the deep meditation that you do, um, you know, with things like maybe psychedelics or chants or staying up late, the dancing things, all those kind of things that you can do to sort of get into different mental states, those things versus poetry. Do you find that, that it's a similar sort of space you enter when writing a poem? Is a poem sort of like a way to do the same thing? Or is there like a qualitatively different aspect to it that's not as deep, maybe? You know, I mean, poetry is amazing because we have like an artifact to bring back with us from that space. But um, what what the, what is the thing you know talking about that depth beyond psychology? What's the thing that got you the deepest? I guess is my question. well, that's a really wonderful question, actually. And I don't know if I've thought of it really that way. Excuse me. Mm. Um, well, I guess there's a couple questions you asked. I mean, one is, uh, you know, what got me the deepest? Well. I, I, one of the thing, the, one of the deepest experiences I ever had was um, in a VW van in Ohio. This was actually so it sort of it sparked things as well. And um, a friend of mine was talking about um, I was talking about the bad state of the world, and my friend said, "Oh, don't worry, it's going to be beautiful or so come out all right." And I thought, "Oh, really?" <laughs> um, and then. You know, no, actually, what's weird is I said that. I said, don't worry. It's she was complaining about the state of the world. That's how it went, because I said, I think it's going to all work out. And she said, oh, you have the faith. And I thought, I don't have any faith. I'm an, I'm an atheist at this point, an agnostic anyway. I have no faith. And she said, well, don't worry about it. She said, you know, um, uh, you can uh, look for... Um, God without having any faith, but once you have the experience, that will all change. And somehow that statement gave it to me. Hmm. And I um, suddenly was in this, so so that was not dancing wildly, taking psychedelics. <laughs> that was just suddenly this memory ar- arose. I can only say it that way. It was deeply familiar. It was this deep, familiar space that felt the closest I could say is love. It also felt there were different 
aspects of it that I didn't understand, and I probably still don't, but I have now ideas, you know, like a light kind of went up my spine, something open, I felt. And it, the main thing, though, was this. How did I ever forget this? So I think that particular experience um, has kind of carried me. Now, the difference between, I mean, sometimes my meditations don't go deep at all. What I attempt when I attempt the meditation, if I sit, for example, I have done a lot of moving meditations, dancing um, and chanting, singing, humming, and those do help me a lot. In fact, there's a particular meditation I really like, which um, it's called Latihan, and it's where uh, you let your body just be still and then you allow it to start to move on its own. And then you try as best you <laughs> try as best you can not to try. You try to just um, allow something to come through you. And I've had some amazing moments with that. In terms of writing poetry, when I first started teaching this class called, um, you know, writing poem making as spiritual practice, it was a theory. It was not a, a fact. It was like, is it really? Because I had my suspicions about words, you know, and, you know, you can, you can affect, you can do your own affecting with words. You can, it's a, it's propaganda in a certain way, you know, it's the language of uh, lies, <laughs> you know? So, um, so there, it was a question I always had, is this really a spiritual practice? But I would say in recent times, since this book in particular, as I've been sharing the poems in it, I feel like it is. I'm, I'm finally convinced it really is. And a big part of it is that it makes space. I'm even calling it, because of the book's title, Temples. It makes space for every experience. So there's no experience that is not possible to make a temple of, is not possible to make space of. So there is a kind of transcendence that can happen as I'm writing a poem or even reading a poem. Um, there's also a kind of redemption that we've been finding in the class I teach. Uh, you know, sometimes a poem will be about some horrible, unthinkable thing. Uh, I'm thinking of one that was written about a, a, a child that was killed by a policeman, something like that. And, and, but it was so, uh, it had so much space and light and heart in it that we all felt a kind of redemption of the entire act in the poem itself. Somehow the, all of us had a healing in reading the poem. So, I mean, I guess that's where my probing is right now is, you know, how deep can this go working with poetry in this way? Yeah, well, I really, you know, resonate with a lot of things you said. Uh, one of the things I, I started to think of it as, um, you know, the, the right brain versus left brain, brain split is so important. And it feels to me like the left brain creates propaganda and the right brain creates art, which is, you know, mm -hmm. one, because the left brain is apprehensive, trying to grasp things and, and use them for its own purposes, whereas the, the right brain is trying to understand and have this sort of see the connections between things, hold complicated thoughts at the same time. Um, and that's sort of the, the way that the world really is that we don't see because we're locked inside the sort of models that they're imposed by that left brain. They want to push out things that we already know rather than discover and add to the model things that we don't know we know yet. And so it seems to me like it's, it's, a, it's almost a war from the one side of your mind, your side yeah. of yourself with the other to try to get some to that space that we call meditative, but is really the deeper understanding of that more holistic way of seeing the world. 
Um, and so do you, is, is art, is, is poetry like a practice for you like that? Do you sit down? And does it feel like meditating when you, when you're actually writing in the words? Yeah, like I said, I don't really have a practice, so it's not like I, unfortunately, although I do write with my students, and I have two classes a week, so I write every single week for half an hour, <laughs> so I guess I have that. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times when I'm, when I'm really, I don't even know if I can call it composing, I often stop myself from calling it composing, because it is kind of this um, following something. It's following more than it, and it's listening more than it's composing. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and it is exactly trying to, um, I mean, I'm very attracted to paradox because I feel like it's the closest we come to truth. And I think that has to do with what you're saying about the two sides of the brain. Um, and one of my practices, strangely, is um, once in a while when I have way too many notebooks that I have with beginnings of poems that I know have something good in them, I'll go to uh, Mendocino and I'll stay in a little room in a hotel there and I'll just pull all my books out and I'll just get in there and I'll start uh, messing with them and listening to them and um, being surprised by them and um so, but the other thing I wanted to say when you talked about the war is that it's inside, that the experience that I described uh, that was kind of my deepest was this, you know, remembering something. The first part of that was feeling like two sides in my, they were kind of in my belly, mm-hmm. a dark and a light came together and stopped fighting. And that was the first experience of that, that before everything kind of became light (laughs) and I I didn't really understand it like I said it was just I can remember like oh everything came together into a whole as opposed to fighting yeah yeah it's really interesting um let's uh let's hear another poem um I want to make sure we get enough it's just fascinating discussion though so I want to make sure we don't steer too far away from the yeah I know I was thinking that myself but we're there (laughs) yeah I think particles and waves is next okay great Okay, so these are these little, um, well, they're a little bit like the uh, pebbles that Jane Hirschfield does, in a way. Particles and waves. Not one straight limb in the Bentwood rocker. My favorite seat. Beetle in that phosphorescent cloak. Have you been visiting the northern lights? Lemon trees first year. One sweet fruit with Saturday's fish, one more to go. They beg me to come down when I hover at the ceiling in dreams where I remembered how to fly. I'm going to skip down, I think. When I ask my grandson how he plans to pay for the heap of ephemera he's piled into my cart, he's quick with the math. He has two wiggly teeth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's just wonderful. I love those particles and waves. And, um, and another uh, sign of the hint to science that keeps coming up. And, and there's a way that, you know, that, that we have um, astronomy as sort of a telescope looking out in the world into deep space. And poetry is a sort of a telescope looking inside the, the soul or something. And that's what we're doing mm-hmm. with poetry. So uh, very interesting that, that the astrology keeps coming up, too. I wanted to ask you um, about the palm reading. 
because um, I have like the longest lifeline. It like goes all the way around. Oh. So every time I hear anybody talk about palm reading, I'm like, I hope it's real because I want to live <laughs> like a super long time. So, um, so, so how did you become a palm reader? And does that have anything to do with what we've been talking about and in poetry too? Well, it is a form of poetry. I've always felt it was a form of poetry. And it is interesting, probably, of, I've done other kinds of psychic readings, but of all the kinds that I've done, I would say the palm, it does have a little more rooted, a little more rooted in um, science, science, actually. For example, um, there is a line uh, that doctors use, and they're taught in medical school, uh, to look for if there's this, uh, if they think Down syndrome, if the baby has Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. And it's called the Simeon line, and it's because uh, in a um, gorilla or other uh, primate's hand, there is just a straight line across the top. And that's where the, um, and the reason is, I mean, <laughs> I don't know how far you want me to go into the science, but um, a simian will move their hand, their fingers together. We have differentiated finger use. And so because of that, when these two fingers come down, that's the heart line. When these two fingers come down, that's the head line. And the thumb creates the lifeline. Oh. So, um, yeah, so the simian line is actually when there's a straight line across Mine has a little bit of that, <laughs> but but not quite. But I've seen because I've done a lot of palm reading. Actually, I made my living that way for a while. So um, uh, when the line goes all the way across, it does kind of mean, you know, that um, the head and the heart are work together. I think of it that way in terms because I worked with um, Down syndrome at a time when I was a psychologist. I had different jobs where I worked with people um, with Down syndrome, and they sort of their heart is their head. So I mean. It's interesting. And also, you know, the, the hand, I think there's a, a third of the cerebral cortex is devoted to the hand. And so one's thoughts about doing um, somehow are manifest in the hand. And so, hmm. yeah, and, I mean, the lifeline, mine has gotten longer. It had a break in it and it's kind of sealed up. And I think that's kind of interesting. That's um, really interesting. Because it does too, change. Yeah. Your hands oh, do change. That's yeah. really interesting too. So when does that develop? Is it how early in the womb? In I the imagine? womb, yeah. yeah. When As soon as the thumb comes out, um, which is about three months, uh, and it starts moving around, then the first half of the lifeline shows. Mm-hmm. And then the second half of the lifeline shows um, a little bit later. And then the fingers aren't even there yet. You know, they sort of slowly uh, emerge and then they, but the the palm is obviously, all the lines are in there when the baby's born. Yeah. Well, that's so fascinating. I, I'm not sure how much it has to do with poetry, but I'm really glad I asked because I got to learn a lot. Of <laughs> I have a poem in one of my books about palm reading, but <laughs> not in this yeah, one. <laughs> that's really true. And you mentioned too, though, um, you know, psychic reading in general, you know, it being a part of a bigger psychic reading. And a lot of times, you know, there's a way that like poetry is sort of like that divination by spontaneously generating stuff and then adding whatever we're adding to it to interpret it and like build it up and to grow it into something. You know, it's like if we have Mm -hmm. a prompt and we have like, you know, red ocean and cat and then you put a poem together based on that, like something wholly new and based on understanding and based on some kind of connection 
that you didn't know comes from that. So is yeah. that the aspect? Is that the thing that connects it all together? That that projection of consciousness, I guess, onto the materials you have to work with? Yeah, and uh, trusting something. I mean, I, I, when I be, was a psychic reader, I had to trust myself. You know, somebody's sitting there, <laughs> and I used to do it in the Catskill resorts, and there'd be a line, you know, people. And I would just have to, if something came, I would just have to trust it. And I think that hap- that's very much a part of uh, when I talk about following a poem as it's being created is kind of when the red and I forget what the other things were that you had there but you know you put the a red river or something like that somehow uh, trusting what shows up and it almost always I think if you if you get into that state and you that's not your left brain it's not your logical brain it's not trying to do something um, that's practical <laughs> in a way it's doing something totally else impractical and you're allowing that to uh, find its way um, it will almost always surprise because the writer themselves, I think, you know, because it's something you never put together before. It's something that never, and to me, that's what a metaphor is. It's like putting things together that never felt like they had any place together. And they suddenly have such a perfect place together. You're thrilled by it. I mean, when I read a great metaphor, that's how I feel. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a great way to put it for sure. Um, well, if anybody has any questions for uh, Parto, uh, just leave them in the chat windows either on Facebook or YouTube, and I will pass them along. There's already one um, before I even asked by Penelope Moffat that's interesting about your name. And I think the next poem might um, tie into that a little bit too. So um, it's a good segue to read the Charlie Chaplin poem as well. And I'll, I'll finish oh, out the good. question if, if you want to answer it all <laughs> on your own. So we'll do Charlie Chaplin first? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Okay, good. Okay. <clears throat> Charlie Chaplin and me. Legend has it that Charlie Chaplin placed third in a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest. Now that I've been threatened suit for stealing a stranger's pick for my publicity photo, I know how he feels. When we met with an arbiter, it got that far. She pointed to the leg in the photo and said, look at the bulge of that calf. That's not your calf. Look at the flounce of those side curls, she said. That's not the way your hair goes. It's mine. I'm embarrassed to admit how unsettling it was. I found myself defensive coming up with details about the day my daughter snapped it on a walk by the lake under the old madrone. No, she said, with a certainty I couldn't match. This was taken at the bus stop on College Ave., See the shadow of oak leaves on my face? I took a good look at my challenger and had to admit she was better at me than me. Floppier hat rimmed with profusions of bright blooms. Periwinkle blouse rhymed perfectly to her eyes. And those widening pupils that tunneled down like black holes artists render at the centers of galaxies. I had to hold fast to my chair to keep from sliding in. Yeah, that was Charlie Chaplin and me. That's actually the poem from the fall issue of Rattle. And I just love that ending, like sort of that turn out of nowhere to falling in, um, <laughs> falling into the black holes of her eyes. That's just great. Again, from Starfall in the Temple. And, um, you know, a poem about identity. And, um, and I didn't think to ask this or even wonder about it, but um, what Monica, or no, Penelope, um, where does it go? I'm trying to find the actual question, but that jumped on me. Hang on a second. Where is it? 
Um, Penelope Moffat. Yeah, here he is. She says, I'm curious about her name. Is it a name that she took for herself? Does it have a meaning? So is there... Um... I was given it uh-huh. um, in India. Excuse me. Some people say sometimes, you know, is it your given name? And I say, yes, actually it is. In 1980, so it's been, I've had it more than half my life mm-hmm. now. Um, and it means, well, Prato is kind of a diminutive for prayer. And, um, but I was told it's a prayer of gratitude. So I often tell people it means the opposite of kvetch. <laughs> so <laughs> it reminds me uh, to stop kvetching and, um, and to be grateful. So it's a good reminder. And, and it's very hard to speak. And <laughs> if I order a bagel and they're going to have to call your name out, I always know it's my turn because they go, uh. <laughs> so anyway, but no, it's, it's, um, it means something to me mm-hmm. to just to keep reminding myself that uh, to be grateful. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, I didn't think to ask that. That's a great question. Thanks for for um, passing that along, Penelope. And I should say, too, if, if you're enjoying this conversation, make sure you click the like button. It's always, if I say that, there's more people clicks and then more people watch it later, and it's always good. So do click the like button if you haven't yet on YouTube or Facebook or anywhere else. Um, and um, <clears throat> let's see, I want to make sure we do enough poems. So let's do, jump right into a next, the next poem, too. Okay. So that's how to befriend uncertainty. Yeah, right? exactly. Mm-hmm. So this is um, a COVID poem probably obvious <clears throat> but um sorry Should I... oh you're fine <laughs> um so this was um a, a written to instructions that i was going to give my sixth grade students i was a poet in the schools and uh, i te- taught many levels but this was sixth grade and it was during covid and it was we were teaching on zoom and so um and the kids were all alone and isolated. And I thought, I'm just going to give them an example of a good instruction poem. I mean, of a, not a no good, but an instruction poem. And so I followed all the instructions I gave them for their instruction poem. So, and it was for myself. And I told them that's what we needed to do, each of us. How to befriend uncertainty. Come, sit in the seat by the window near the birds who have shaken off their dreams and open themselves to this never-to-be-again day. Today, we won't be asked to bumble along the beaten byways, for uncertainty is our house guest. Put on the water, set out the homemade jam. Uncertainty will listen with us as our bagels pop from the toaster's dark mouth and the coffee grounds weep their bittersweet sobs. Uncertainty is mystery's love child, no history, no proper name, but she has always been with us. She is the one who wakes us to drizzle new questions into our day, new stories, new colors and light. The wind is her breath. Her body is the water we bathe in and drink. Uncertainty with her barefoot dancing gypsy soul knows the unpaved roads to gratitude by heart. But of certain things, like tomorrow, she knows nothing. And because of this, her love knows no bounds. And that was How to Befriend Uncertainty. A really great how-to poem from Starfall in the Temple. 
by Parto Sereno. And um, <clears throat> I'm glad you mentioned the, the poets in the schools because I wanted to bring that up. Um, it's a perfect timing, too, if anybody's watching this right now, because the deadline for the next Rattle Young Poets anthology is two days away. So if you happen to be listening and haven't, if you know any young poets and haven't sent their poems in, you still have about 48 hours from the live broadcast anyway. So don't hesitate to do it. It's really fun to do. It's one of the highlights of the year for us because we get to see these voices and how much surprising and how, how much depth there is to the things young people say. You know, we always bring up this quote, but Sharon Olds in our interview said that uh, there's not a bad poet in the first grade. And I've done <laughs> poets in the schools a little bit, too. And I found that, I mean, just amazing what comes out of young people just when you teach them a little bit about how to generate stuff and be free. They just grasp on and love it. So what has your experience been like? And what did you learn about poetry by teaching um, children through poets in the schools for so long? Mm. Well, what you were just saying, you know, one of the things was um, first and second graders, I mean, I, I used to call them my mystics, you know, because they don't know cliche, really. It takes a while to learn cliche. And so if you ask uh, a second grader, I'm remembering, uh, you know, what's the softest thing in the world? They're not going to say a, a bunny or cotton. or something. They'll say the floppy part at the bottom of your ear, <laughs> you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's just so fresh and so true. I mean, I never knew how soft the bottom of my ear was until he said that. But um, uh, so, you know, there's something about just the... Um, Again, I guess it's, you know, I would always say to them, trust yourself. But I think I was teaching myself as much as them because they were teaching me about that trust. Yeah. And, and it feels to me like, you know, as, as adult writers, we're trying to get back to that space that they write from where everything seems new again, because we haven't, yeah. you know, imposed our will and our models of how we think things should be on the world. Um, do you do you think um, that space is easier for you to get to because of all the meditative kind of practice that you have? Like, do you like? It seems like you've been cultivating that sense of wonder for your whole life, probably. Um, mm-hmm. Do you, Do you find that sort of the root of your poetry is that that childlike space of wonder? Yeah, that's interesting. I had a, a little painting business for a while. I was painting on I don't even know what that clothing I think at that time, um, and it was called Return to Wonder. And, um, you know, that was a long time ago, so <laughs> decades ago. Uh, so, I, yeah, I think that's always been my um, – I, I knew that wonder was probably the most valuable experience that, that we have, and it's so much fun to share it. You know, it's also good for everybody around you. It's not just good for you. Uh, and so it's always been something I wanted to cultivate. And, and luckily, you know, like I got this job as a poet in the schools. I was invited. I didn't even try for it. You know, somebody just called me, came out of the sky, Karen Benke. Uh, she'd read my essay book, actually, and said, do you write poetry? Would you like to do this? And so, um, yeah, I've had a very lucky. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so, and, I, and meditation is part of it, I think, just uh, another way to uh, continue the wonder to continue to um, be in that state. Yeah, you know, um, one time I, let me just say this. One time I was using the word wonder in first grade, and I started to think, do they know what I'm talking about? I think they know. You know, I wonder, but wonder. You know, I was talking about, and so I said, what does that mean? And, anybody, and this girl raised her hand really high, and, and she said, um, well, it mean it's when you get a question inside you. And it gets so deep, and you can't answer it, 
And then she said, and maybe nobody can. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's it. That's it. Well, that is wonderful. <laughs> that's great. I love that. And, and there's so many things that they just spontaneously say and come up with. We have mm. some poets in those anthologies where it's just, you know, a three or four year old or, you know, can't even write, you know, of course, at that age. And the parent is following them, you know, or they come up to the parent and say, oh, I want to write a poem. I'm going to say it. And then they record it and yeah. write the thing down. And it's just these amazing things that come out of their mouths sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any advice for anybody who is interested in maybe teaching in schools? Because I think that's something we, we don't think about or mention enough. I mean, California Poets in the Schools is sort of a program that like helps set people up and teach them how to approach schools. And they have like information packets and stuff. Um, but really, if you just call up an elementary school and say, I'm a poet, I would love to teach, you know, volunteer to teach or, you know, moving that into being able to teach in the schools is something that anybody could really do and would be so much appreciated and so valuable. Do you have any advice? Like if somebody is entering a program like that, of going into a classroom, like what works best and, and how, how would you go about teaching kids in a way that, you know, what did you learn in that process of doing it for so long? Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I definitely want to uh, underscore what you just said. I think anybody who wants to go into a school and especially at the beginning, maybe volunteer, you know, I remember at the beginning I would have because Poets in the Schools is a great organization and they had things uh, like uh, grants, little mini grants. So you can go in and do things and get paid. But uh, the school didn't have to pay and you just had to kind of convince them by coming in. Um so what would I, I mean, I, I wrote a whole book about this, actually, which I haven't um, finished or published, but it's close. That's what I did. One of the things I did during COVID, it's called Tending the Roots in a STEM-Crazed World. And so um, what can I say about how to do it? I mean, the main thing I would say, one of the main things, <laughs> there'd be a lot of me, <laughs> but would be um, to get the kids to write poems with you um, I would bring in poems that were samples, but a lot of times I'd have the kids create the sample. So I would start, uh, for example, uh, today we're going to imagine that uh, colors can be, pe- well, be people. I'd say, like, just tell me which color uh, is, drives a sports car. And then they all raise their hand. And, and immediately they get the joke. They get the idea, you know. And then which color, you know, is keeps a secret the best? Which color, you know, plays basketball and can you know, like that? So we do this whole thing. And then um, we write a poem together about gray. And I'll say, oh, look, gray just showed up at the door. <laughs> you know, and I'll say... Gray's going to come in, and I usually do gray partly because most kids don't have that as their favorite color, so we can really do gray big. You know, how does he move, you know? And then we talk about verbs, and we uh, and we write a poem together, and then they they take off because they can pick another color and turn it into a human being and have fun. Well, that's great, great advice. And, and I think it definitely, too, uh, you know, Poets and Writers has grants, too, where they match for community involvement. There's a whole bunch of opportunities if you just, if it, you know, so that's why I wanted to mention it, just because mm-hmm. it's something people might not have thought of, but it, there's opportunities to do it. And it's a lot of fun and really rewarding. I mean, I remember, mm-hmm. you know, going into a school and, and having no idea what I'm doing. And then all the kids in like seventh grade, where they're usually miserable, just loved when you showed up and you're just, I oh, know. we're just doing poems today. <laughs> and they're like excited to see you. It is like dorky. You know, poet coming in. <laughs> so exactly. Great. Um, so anyway, yeah. um, let, let's read another poem. Um, let's go uh, next up. We had um, in the counting house. Yeah, the gazo. So this is the gazo, which is uh, a form, and I tried to stay very close to it. It was interesting. I, I, this is my first successful gazo, and um, so every 
uh, stanza ends with the word count. So we're in the counting house. That's part of the rules. There's a few other rules. I'm supposed to address myself, which I do at the end. So um, in the counting house. Before they did the assignment, they always asked if it was going to count. And if it counted, they wanted to know how much it would count. I cleaned for a millionaire who owned two mansions, one with a 30-foot waterfall, one in a lakeside stand of pines. But she always made me count out $2 in coins before she gave me the $50 bill. She held her breath and her empty outstretched hand as I counted. They tell me once it was tulip bulbs. Before that, shells and beads and hand-carved figurines is what we count. Who was happier, the king in his counting house or his queen with bread and honey, a sweetness he could count on? Some days it amounts to almost nothing, my little stash of this and that, but who's counting? Yes, worries cheap at the window, Prato, but turn and see how rich the birds at their feeder. Seeds flying like flung stars. Too many to count. That was In the Counting House, a guzzle by uh, Prato Sereno from Starfall and Temple, her beautiful new book. Um, and that, that mentioned the house cleaning. And one of the things I wanted to ask is which of all the, the so many fascinating jobs you've done, <laughs> which one sort of is the most memorable and you have the most nostalgia for? Like, which one did you appreciate most? I, I was thinking about, um, for me, it was the group home where I was a counselor for um, adults with schizophrenia. And, um, you know, so when we, you know, have them and just talk and hear their stories were so fascinating and varied. And then also there was this time after they went to bed where I could write poems. So it was a perfect job for, oh, yeah. for um, but, uh, but, but like that, what, what is the job that you found the most rewarding or the most interesting or just do you have the most nostalgia for? You know, I think it was Poet in the Schools, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was the one I kept the longest. I was, uh, you know, flitting around a lot, as you've heard, but, um, but that one, you know, it, it, I, I think of it often, uh, how it, it kept something young in me mm -hmm. that um, I still have. And I just, I owe everything to those kids, actually. So, Did you focus on a certain grade level or, or roughly? Or was well, you know, when I first yeah. came in, there were a lot of poets in Marin County where I live. It's a very, um, you know, there was a big program and a lot of poets. And so the only thing left was first and second grade. Nobody wanted them. And so I always kept a lot of first and second grade. So I love them, actually. Even though they can't write that well, a lot of them, they can hardly hold a pencil, some of the kids in first grade. But, you know, I would take dictation once in a while for them. Um, so I loved the really young kids. But I also really loved middle school um, because their brains are liquid. <laughs> they're kind of, and, you know, they're willing to, I don't know, they, they, I had a lot of fun in, in uh middle school. And, but then I also really loved um, juvenile hall. I taught in juvenile hall. And what you were saying about uh, the kids applauding, that would happen to me at juvenile hall. I would just be so touched, you know, mm -hmm. like I'd come in and they would stand up sometime and go, poetry. You know, they were just so happy. And I know, it, you know, maybe I could take a tiny bit, but it was basically poetry itself that they were applauding, you know, mm -hmm. that they could uh, speak their own weird and wonderful selves. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, well, let's see. Look at the clock. Um, we have uh, two poems left. Let's do Autumn Counts next. Okay, good. Autumn Accounts. So you can see I'm accounting toward the end of the book. <laughs> <laughs> we had the counting house. Now these are accounts. 
Autumn accounts. They say it's never too late. What with George H.W.'s skydive for his 90th and the 100-year-old water skier who bobbed and waved from my fridge till his photo yellowed and frayed. But it probably is too late to become a rocket scientist or oral surgeon, too late to free climb Half Dome or perform as the principal in Swan Lake. And it's surely too late to die young. Still, there may be time to enter the longing and give ourselves to what we become when we turn in its light. Pitcher of twilight, angel of glass, a grasshopper the size of a young boy's heart, a labyrinth of stones like the one we discovered in the hills, that slow walk to nowhere, the very same nowhere we were getting to so fast. And that is Autumn Accounts, again, from um, Starfall in the Temple by Partro Serrano. And, and I wanted to ask about, about that, about looking back at such a varied and interesting life. Um, and you've sort of settled on poetry in the latter half of it as the real mm. focus of it. Um, why do you think that is, that, that it was poetry that, that sort of gives you the most or lets you stick with it? Or, you know, what is the purpose of poetry to you? Why do this when, you know, we don't sell you know, thousands and thousands of copies of these books or anything. Um, why, why poetry and not other things that might reach more people? Yeah. Just saying yes, you know, <laughs> that's what, that's what comes. So, you know, those are the opportunities that come and that's the, what comes through me. And, uh, but it's interesting. I think of it as ballast as you described it, you know, almost it, because it is interesting. I, I was a flitter, you know, I went from thing to thing and place to place and, um, and this became home. It, it easily became a place I could, uh, you know, some of my students have said, too, who have been with me for years. I've, my adult students have been with me, some of them for over a dozen years. And they'll say, how long can we keep this up? <laughs> you know, because I don't uh, repeat a class ever, a session ever. And it just feels like, yeah, I've had the same question. I don't think there's an end to it. There's no bottom. There's, um, so, yeah, I think that's why poetry somehow... And, you know, it's been amazing. I've been able to um, keep myself afloat teaching poetry, and uh, mainly that's, you know, how I make my living. Mm-hmm. Well, that's so. great. And, uh, you know, we've been talking about the broader questions, which are so interesting to me, that I realized, thanks to Mark Grinier here, who asking a very typical, uh, you know, a standard say, poem question, um, we haven't really talked about poetry as a craft at all in this in the interview, because mm-hmm. there's so much else to talk about. But in that mm-hmm. poem... Um, if I can pull, find it again, I think it was 72. Yeah. Um, in the poem, um, he says, the step-down form at the end of Automobile Counts, how did that come about? And one of the things, I just love the way your poems move and turn and end. So I wonder if you talk more Ooh. generally about the, how you come to an ending, you know, because they all feel like this you know, reflective, meditative thing, you can very easily see sort of the initiating impulse a lot of the times, mm-hmm. like this interesting thing I heard or saw or read that that has my mind, you know, I'm daydreaming and trying to understand it and how make sense of it and what it all means. Um, and then, you know, moving through exploring in deeper and deeper detail. Um, but, but how do you make it to the end? But, but in, in particular, in this autumn accounts, um, if you remember, you know, you have the regular sort of stanzas and then it steps down into this sort of s- slower pace, maybe shorter lines too. Um, yeah. how did that come to be? That's so interesting. <laughs> Good question. I think it's a great question. Um, mm-hmm. and because really the, the, the voice of the poem is changing also 
in a way. It's very conversational in the beginning, you know. Um, so the the form seems to want to be something a little more block looking, you know, because it's conversational. They say it's never too late. They say, you know, that kind of phrase. Um, and, you know, but it probably is too late. So I'm, I'm just kind of, and I do, I notice that a lot of the poems, probably maybe forever, but especially lately, a lot of the poems have a conversational kind of voice to them, rhythm to them. But then I do fall, still there may be time, when I hit that moment, um, still there may be time to enter the longing. And somehow when I read that again, I'm always, I like that, to enter the longing and give ourselves uh, to what because that's one of the things I've been thinking about also is that I I've given myself to poetry I thought that even before all these questions today and it has given back I mean and I think in a way whatever you if you give yourself to anything in a total way it will give a lot back and so you know and give ourselves to what we become so now it becomes more meditative exactly I went sort of from it's a good point that he he saw you know I've left the block a little more left brain world and now i'm coming into a place that's different and and that's the point of the poem also you know it's interesting i don't think i'm not thinking exactly like this when i do it but i'm feeling my way through and i am in terms of endings i'm always listening for the ending in the same way that i'm listening to a poem i'm i'm looking for where it wants to take me and you know there's of course this wonderful satisfaction if, if it ends up in a place that feels like a good ending um you know i can kind of feel it like there's a clunk or there's a i've heard box lid saying but then this other thing that happens this where the the poems are, the lines are kind of sliding i mean that's interesting it looks now to me suddenly like a mary oliver poem she had a lot of poems in this style you know where she was indenting um the stanza on the way down and there it's an, we've talked about this in my classes you know what happens is that does that indent mean more space or does it mean you kind of go quicker to the next line because it's almost like a stare and i'm not exactly sure but to me i feel like in this particular poem it's um each one of the images gets to be on its own and we're going to take it down. I, I think that is it. You know, we're going to sort of let this, these images take us into some other part of ourselves. It's, that's not the surface we started on. So. Yeah. Very interesting question. Thanks, uh, Mark, for that. And, um, and, and just in general, I was thinking too, as we were reading poems, um, you know, and on our critiquing show that we do on Fridays, we always talk about like, you know, the poem stays on one level and doesn't push deeper, you know, and mm. I think looking at your work, it's an example of, of pushing deeper and deeper and deeper. And it's hard to explain how to do that. But, mm. but you know, it's finding a way to to dig farther down. So is there a way that you go about doing that? Is your as you're writing the poem and composing it? Are you looking for like, avenues to go down? Um, how does it come to be that you're able to, to push the poems to, cause the poems are sort of a, you know, a page, a page and a half, two pages sort of length, but they have a lot of movement in them through ideas mm -hmm. and thoughts and stuff. So mm -hmm. how do you, how do you keep yourself moving forward within a poem? Is that something you could, you think about? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's interesting. I'm, I'm thinking of something that, uh, I take, I take, uh, Ellen Bass's workshop, sometimes living room, Ellen Bass in the living room. And, um, I asked her a question once and she answered and it was, well, because it's often, um, 
said that a poem doesn't work or it does work, you know. And I said, well, what does that mean when a poem doesn't work? And she gave a really cryptic, wonderful answer. And she said, I don't care about it. She said, a poem doesn't work if I don't care about it. And so I think there is something that, and, and that's a thing I talk about with my all level of students, um, is developing the muscle. And it's your heart muscle, I think, somehow, to feel um, where you're losing interest where not even just into you don't care anymore about it you know and to and i will say you know sometimes it comes in the rewrite process but i write very messy i don't have a copy here but um i'm rewriting the entire time i'm writing so i have a really weird process i can't do anything about it it's just what it is you know i i envy people they're just writing you know i'm i write and then oops and then i'm up here and i'm down here and then but um so, but I'm always kind of listening for, because what'll happen is I'll write something and I'll think, I don't care about that line. That's kind of is what it is. You know, I, I, I don't like where this is going. It's not interesting to me. I know there's some place to go that is more interesting to me because it's stranger. I would say that's one of the qualities, you know, it's unusual for me to go there. Um, it's, um, it's closer to, um, something I've been carrying around, but haven't been able to do anything, enter. And so, oh, I could go closer to that. So, yeah, <laughs> I don't know how helpful no, that I is. I think that, that really is helpful. And, you know, there's that whole no surprise for the reader, no surprise for the writer mantra. But really, it's if, if you don't care about what you're writing, no one else is going to care either. And it's yeah. interesting you mentioned it being connected to the heart like very physically, because I, mm. you know, I feel like when I'm reading submissions, all I'm doing is like letting things appear in front of me, <clears throat> like these sounds and, you know, the, the speech coming in, you know, through my eyes to my breath, though. And mm -hmm. then I don't even have to pay attention because somehow if I mm -hmm. start to care, like I start to actually feel physically, like you start to like have the little goosebumps, your heart starts to beat a different way. I mean, there's really like some connection that's beyond just your brain. Um, and it's so fascinating that we've always talked about like love being in the heart and that's the symbol for the heart. But it's so true that, that you know, it works that way within a poem too. Um, so is that what you're doing? You're like listening for your own like physiology, like an actual re physical reaction to what you're writing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. I love what you're saying because I curate the class I teach and I bring in sample poems and that's exactly what I'm doing. Just what you said. Like I can tell if I'm a lot of times the first line, I'll say, okay, I'm going into this poem, <laughs> you know, something happens in me and it's a definitely physical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you feel um, that over time, since you've been in poetry for, for a while, that, uh, that with more and more MFA type poets, I don't know if you have poets that already have MFAs in your, your classes. It feels to me that the, the seeking that feeling is sort of diminished because there's so much craft I think mm -hmm. sort well, of I hiding MFA, that feeling you know. a little bit. Yeah. I got an MFA when I was in my sixties. I went mm -hmm. back to, to uh, Syracuse university <laughs> and, and I was in my mid sixties. All my fellow students were in their thirties. Yeah. Or twenties. I think they were all, nobody was 30 yet in my fellow students <laughs> anyway. So, um, but I did have trouble there in a way because I felt like it was, um, it was academia had snuck into, you know, a place that shouldn't academia shouldn't be part of, mm -hmm. you know, and um, it did feel like it had something to do with. Um, I don't know what it was, you know, there one of the things that I would say is there was kind of a suspicion of joy 
and um, love and things like that. You know, poems that, that went into the deep, dark spaces were uh, were often more uh, acceptable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a fascinating um, aspect, too. Uh, Laura B. Strange. says duende, just one word, which is a great word for what exactly we're talking about, too, that whatever it is. Um, you know, is Wednesday is great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that kind of darkness I'm totally for. Yes. <laughs> In fact, I wrote it at my thesis. I, I had to write a little intellectual paper and it was on Duende and Ruth Stone's poems. And, um, yeah, I, and I just love Lorca's description of Duende. Uh, so we're, we're coming up out of time. Um, if it, you mentioned your class many times, if people want to do that, are you, are, is it, does it roll continuously? Can people find that through your website and just join? It does. You it... can find it through my website mm -hmm. right now. I haven't, um, updated it exactly. And we're in the middle of a series, so probably not now, but, um, if you go to my website and even write to me and say, I'd like to be on your list, that will be a help because I do send out emails, but also you can register on the site generally when the class starts mm -hmm. and there'll be a new one starting, um, See, we're going to take a bit of a break, so it won't be till probably mid-January, mm -hmm. mid to late January. Well, I think I think you know, listening to this, a lot of people might be really interested because it's such an interesting conversation with you and such mm. great poems too. Um, so uh, let's finish out with the last one on the list here: practice run toward the end of the book. Okay, great. So practice run. We get a few practice runs. One day, for instance, as your plane lifts off, your life passes before you. The city below strewn with spent days, at once devastating and beautiful when spread out this way, the potholed landscape of catastrophe and grace. You'll feel like the bricklayer watching the weather take down the walls, the gardener at the fence after harvest, the conductor at the window of his emptied train. You'll see the good bits were small, but everywhere, fine threads worked into a coarse weave, You'll see what an immensity it's been to walk and breathe and feel things for which there are no words. You'll wonder how you missed the tenderness of the breezes in your leaves. You'll wish you'd done almost everything differently. But then again, would you really change a thing? Uh, yeah, great poem. Great poem to end on, too. Practice yeah. run from uh, Starfall in the Temple, the beautiful new book by Puerto Sereno, um, available from, um, is it Blue? It's Blue Light Press. Blue Light Press. That's, I thought mm -hmm. it'd be on the back, but I couldn't see it. There, Blue Light Press at the very bottom. Mm -hmm. Okay, <laughs> Blue Light Press. Yeah, okay. beautiful work. And thanks so much for this really fascinating discussion, Puerto. It's been so much fun. Uh, thanks for joining us. I loved it. Thank you. And like I said, full circle, because yeah. I started with you. <laughs> oh, that's just, that's just great to hear. Yeah, yeah. thanks again. Wonderful. Have a good night. Thank you. Yeah, that was Proctor Sereno. Uh, once again, you can find um, more, all of her books and, and more work and, and the classes too at ProctorSereno.com. That's P-R-A-R-T-H-O-S-E-R-E-N-O.com. ProctorSereno.com. So go ahead and find this book. I really highly recommend it. And uh, Indian Road Trick too, I really loved. So uh, do check those out. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to our open lines. And how that works are prompt lines. I should say we're rebranding and I keep forgetting. These are prompt lines, only uh, poems about the prompts. I need to change my little label on the uh, screen here. But it is the prompt lines. So if you have a prompt, the prompt for this week was to write a sonnet with the title, The End of Blank is Not Blank. After Jamaica's American sonnet, The End of Sorrow is Not Happiness. So we should see a lot of sonnets, a lot of 14-liners at least. Um, and if you have one, email it now to prompt lines. Prompt lines all one word, at rattle.com. Then I can show the poems on screen as you read them. 
um, and then join the Zoom link, which I'm about to paste into the chat windows on Facebook and YouTube. Uh, I'll pin them to the top so you can see them. Um, <clears throat> so join the Zoom link, and I'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Now, like I said, the uh, prompt for this week was to, a very simple one, write a sonnet with the title, The End of the Blank is Not Blank. After Jamaica Baldwin's sonnet, The End of Sorrow is Not Happiness. And as always, we have our prompt poem editor here, Kitty Dozier. Um, hey, Katie, how you doing? Ed, how are you? I'm doing great. It's good to see you, of course. And uh, so what was your experience writing uh, this poem this week? The end of blank is not blank. I know you like the American sonnet form. We argue about it all the time um, because I am always disappointed when uh, the submission comes in and says it's a sonnet and then it's just an American sonnet, which has no rhyme or meter. But you consider it a container, like a, a sort of size and shape of a poem, which has a value, which I agree with. I concede that point. But anyway, what is your um, what was your experience writing this one? First, I would argue that my American sonnets still have rhyme, so I would point that out as my first. That is true, and I guess on that, you know, on one level, the internal rhyme—I mean, they're all over poems that you know, like I mean, end rhyme. But that's yeah. If you come in, make sure you stay muted. Anyway, so Katie. So I started out, and I actually I I have one in progress that actually is a Shakespearean sonnet, but I also felt like I was writing too much towards the rhyme and I fell out of my connection to the poem. So this is the one that I wrote that I felt the most, most connected to. I also tried to write one that was actually called The End of Blank is Not Blank. But that, <laughs> I was too caught up in that being clever yeah. and it went nowhere. So so how did you pick, how did you pick what this would be though? The, the, the title, I assume that came first. Um, yeah, it did come first. I actually, um, a previous one that I did, I think I had the title, like the end of humanity is not AI. And that's another one that I wrote, mm -hmm. uh, with a little bit less success this week. So I went from that to the end of the world and I wanted to try to, I figured like putting a date at, or a, you know, reference a time at the end was kind of interesting, um, to try to twist it. So yeah, a lot of, I feel like I could write a whole chat book on this prompt though, actually. So mm -hmm. I feel like though I'm also patting myself on the back by saying that. So, <laughs> well, I've got it up on screen. Um, and I, maybe you should write a whole new chat book maybe you should write it in 30 days too. You could do that in 30 days. Why in 30 days when you can do it in three days. Ah, no. <laughs> okay. So I have it on screen, go ahead and read it. All right. The end of the world is not today. Forgive me. I know as long as there are governments, there will be war. But today I turned off the news, stepped outside, and watched a brittle leaf paper airplane itself across the sky. It slid down the runway of a sidewalk, its landing gear a broken stem. I know how rainbows spring up, both in chalk and clinging to the dark thoughts of oil spills. I know leaves will be crunched by little feet that love to jump. Mulch will feed the daffodils and how they'll grow. Their yellow hats lining the pews we no longer seem to know. And there's that rhyme at the end, of course, that we mentioned earlier. The end of the world is not today. And um, fortunately, a title that applies every day except for the last day. So yeah, I was thinking, like, if I'm wrong, nobody's going to know. So it's okay. That's true. Good point. Excellent <laughs> point. But, uh, but true, I, I really love that poem and love the political message, too. A rare political poem I like. So thanks for sharing that, Katie. Thank you. Thanks. All right. And now for mine, <clears throat> I did... <clears throat> 
I'm not really sure why, but I did. This poem was called, <clears throat> sorry, The End of Loneliness is Not a Crowd, which somehow came to me. And I noticed that that, um, that line happens to be iambic pentameter, like sort of the end of loneliness is not a crowd. And so I thought, well, what if I start out as the first line and somehow it came to me that maybe I should try to write a monorhyme haiku or monorhyme sonnet, which I've never done. I don't think before they have done it with slant rhyme, but this is true rhyme. So I was on the plane flying back from Texas, had no access to a thesaurus. I wrote down all the words I could think of that rhymed with crowd. And there were exactly 14, which was perfect too. I could not think of any more. I came back and um, looked at a thesaurus and uh, there really aren't any more except for like fake ones and repetitions. So there actually are 14 words that rhyme with crowd, according to uh, dictionary.com. And so this is the end of loneliness is not a crowd. It's not a thousand patrons talking loud inside a cafeteria, nor the cloud of smoke that hangs outside a dirty shroud over the city, nor the field now plowed in the distance, nor the farmer feeling proud about his work. Is not a tree endowed with fruit, not hanging low, not many bowed. The end is not the cows so crudely cowed inside their pens like heavy furrows browed, as tightly packed as their beefy bulk allowed while they kicked and stomped and groaned aloud. The end of loneliness can't be kapowed like that. The judges aren't so simply wowed. That doesn't mean it should be disavowed. So that is my um, mono-rhymed sonnet. The end of loneliness is not a crowd. Let's see uh, what everybody else has uh, to share. We'll start out first. We'll just go in order. Let's go to uh, Dick Westheimer next. Hey, Tim. Hey, Dick. Good to see you. Good to see you. I really resonated and sort of felt a little sheepish about that line in the end in your interview about caring Hmm. um, and how how, um, easy it is to... um, to fracture that with too much craft to sort of like spoil the caring, you know, it's not that we shouldn't craft. It's just that sometimes you get in there and tinker with things and, Mm -hmm. and you start caring more about that than the poem. Yeah, it definitely happens. And we were talking to Jane Hirschfield about that too. When I was saying like, it's easy to fake it. I remember. And she was like, what, why would you fake it? (laughs) I was like, well, you can though, you know, you can like, you could you could not actually care, but use all the craft tools to make it seem like it's still a poem. And, and you know, my feeling about how well the poem works is how much it surprised myself and how, um, you know, unexpected and how much of that deep space it found. And so it's interesting to think about caring is sort of the the fundamental unit of that, I guess, which is a, a way I hadn't thought to put it. Yeah, it, it's wonderful. And, and it struck me with the especially the rhyming metric sonnet that I worked on today, which is at the top of the two that I sent you, is that as you sort of get to the end and you have this constraint and you're trying to find rhymes, all of a sudden you're caring about, can I make it fit rather than and, and, and it's a really complicated dance, mm-hmm. uh, at least. But then, the, you know, focusing on making it fit is like the distraction sometimes you need in order to um, not, you know, make the poem go where you thought it was going to. So I think it's sometimes that's how a formal poet will, will tell you that that's the way that they can't write without that that distraction, you know. So it's interesting, too. Well, um, I there there's a short one here there i did a nonce for the second one which which i will defer um it's yeah i think a, since it's a short form today we do have 21 people here in the audience but it's a short form i think the i think we'll have time to do if you, if you have to write two this week feel free to share both yeah okay 
Well, I'll do the first one, which is a rhyming metric sonnet that I still haven't figure, figured out the meter of the uh, last line, which is the wonderful thing about Katie's new group is we can put poems up there that are in, in process. Um, so this is called The End of Us Is Not a Dream. I am suspicious of a man who claims he can't recall his dreams, who went awake about his day, doesn't feel the inky breeze of what assailed him in his sleep, who doesn't know that he exists in a gauze-hung three-ring carnival of silent streets and empty crypts. The fact is I am such a man who wakes not knowing what he's missed, who scoffs at those whose divinations sound like oil and water mixed. It's the bloody news and a drowse blurred kiss that missed in my waking on this listing ship. Uh, that's great. Great use of the rhyme. The meter was sound and fun. I, I really like that. The end of us is not a dream. Um and I should mention, too, that when you mentioned a group, that is on Facebook. So if you want to find prompt Rattlecast prompts on Facebook, you can find the group and join. Um, and Katie um, and myself, although much more Katie, <laughs> moderates that group. So, um, yeah, I hope everybody can join. Let's hear the other one, too. This is a, a uh, so this is a guzzle sonnet, uh, sort it's of a, a whatever you call it. A, <laughs> what, right. what are you going to call it, Dick? <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's a nonce, right? You know, it's sort of like a form where I tried to see, could I, could I, do a guzzle and still have the sort of um, the sonnet-like ring at the end that happens, um, you know, with 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 that that shift. And I'm not sh I'm not sure because you know there's this incoherence and spark between the couplets in a, in a guzzle, and then the you know there should be some coherence in the last say four lines of a of a of a sonnet that give it some coherence so i'm not sure if i did that successfully yeah it's, it's interesting idea to combine the two yeah um well you're sort of challenging us to all sorts of forms here katie you know it's it's uh it's uh it, you know with with our thursday guzzle and then write a sonnet the end of pain is not love the years before she died, my mother could not outrun pain. The therapist told her she'd need to learn to love pain. The nurses asked me to rate from one to ten the range of my heart attack bone-crushed ten-ton maul of pain. I knew at once, I, I knew it. I knew at once all my farm work plans would change when the shovel handle caught my rib now clutched with pain. Why did I wake palpating my bruise? Susan explained. We all seek evidence of life. We learn to trust pain. Before we wed, my bride and I fought about one constraint. Her parents were devotees to a death do us, to death do us part cult of pain. When I first saw a loved one come undone with a hurricane of madness and rage, I felt I'd never rise above the pain. What made you think, Dick, you wouldn't have a turn, Stu explained. No one makes it through all his days without his share of pain. Oh, that's excellent. I think great use of that, uh, that, that you know, com combination of the two forms. Really cool, Dick. Thanks for sharing that. And as Caitlin Buck's mom mentioned, sort of a, I think she said there's a Venn diagram of that, uh, the guzzle, the sonnet, and the duplex, all kind of related forms. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, thanks for sharing that.
Yeah, thank you all. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, uh, it was Dick Westheimer with uh, The End of Pain is Not Love and The End of Is is Not Dream. Okay, let's go, since we mentioned to Caitlin and she's two down, let's go to Caitlin next. Hey, Caitlin. Hello. That was kind of a nice, like, oh, I need to pay attention now when you said my name. <laughs> <laughs> well, I figured, yes. Yeah, so I thought it would be useful. <laughs> well, and I was paying attention, but I'm, I have the video playing on my TV with the sound off so that I can, like, look at the poem and listen here because I'm cool yeah, like that. Anyway. That's how the pros um, do it. And, um, and I should say, too, that's a good reminder if you're watching, you know, it's better to watch um, on, on the actual stream, the regular stream, because you can see the poems, too. So if you're sitting here for a long time, uh, you can watch a little bit on the YouTube and come back. Or if you're done, you can go back to the YouTube. So, um, you know, feel free to jump about. But uh, or, as Caitlin does, just do both at the same time. <laughs> so what was your uh, what was your sonnet? So I maybe kind of like Katie wrote a bunch of different like titles for it to try and see where I was going to go. I don't always start a poem with the title, but this time I did. Um, and I came up with some good ones that I wanted to work on. I just kind of didn't get around to it. And um, my first MFA term is wrapping up this week. So mm -hmm. I was kind of like, okay, I'm lucky to get one out. <laughs> um, so this one is the end of conflict is not resolution. Okay, it's all ready. Which is to say, a ceasefire is not all it takes to heal wounds, begin repair. Apologies may be long in coming, and blood takes time to cool, to be renewed. Given what we all know of compromise, we expect to be unhappy. Don't dare to look a greedy gift horse in the mouth. Let an enemy be the hand that feeds. Let's just say another bomb doesn't drop. Who will see silence as a place to take refuge from animosity, a chance on changing beliefs over peace of mind? Give up pride and blame. Honor the dead by saying, life is not mine for the taking. Ah, very interesting poem. Another politicalish one. The end of conflict is not resolution. Um, so Kate, what are you thinking about that MFA program? It's Antioch, right? It's a, is it mm -hmm. low residency? It is low residency, which works for me because then I get to stay in Alaska <laughs> for uh -huh. most of the year. But um, going down there in June was super fun, and I can't wait to go in December again. Um, would highly recommend that program to anybody on the West Coast looking into an MFA. Um, but I'm actually jumping into screenwriting next term, so uh -oh. um, don't tell don't tell poetry we're going to lose yet. I hope not. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I've been getting that a lot. Like some my my poetry, the poetry group in my cohort is very small, and so they're like, "No, don't leave us." And I'm like, "It'll be fine. I promise. You can work with the other cohorts. I'll probably be back." But anyway, um, but another good news um i'm publishing my first author that's not me through red sweater press in february um and pre-orders just opened for that so um if anybody wants to check out oblivescence by kelly r samuels go to red sweater press perfect yeah great uh great pitch there too and uh it's true the uh the reason why I went to uh, the MPW, the Masters of Professional Writing at USC, is because they had all these different genres. You could do film, you could do all sorts of things, 
and uh, they called it a professional writing degree instead of uh, MFA. So I thought that was fascinating too. But anyway, looking forward to uh, your screenplay at some point, and uh, maybe you can start you know funding poems based on your <laughs> your screenplay well, writing or something. It's really <laughs> interesting to find so many like poet screenwriters. I've already started, especially in the LA mm-hmm. area, and yeah. I'm I'm really interested to see how those overlap. So if anything else, I'll just I'll I'll start writing movie poems or something. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, well, very cool. Well, do check it out. RedSweaterPress.com. Good talking to you, Kate. Yeah, you too. Yep, that was Caitlin Buxbaum with uh, The End of Conflict is Not Resolution. And next up is uh, Douglas Silver. Hi, Tim. Hey, Hi, Douglas. Good to see you again. Thanks for coming back. Good to see you. All the poets, great to see you. Yeah, I couldn't be here last week, so Tuesday morning I watched it on YouTube. Uh, last week's interview with uh, Jamaica Baldwin, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And... Uh, Saw the prompt, you know, fill in a couple of blanks mm-hmm. with that title and uh, listen to her themes and tones. And uh, I just sat right down and wrote this. It's called um, The End of Ignorance is Not Wisdom. Very cool. Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. The End of Ignorance is Not Wisdom after Jamaica Baldwin. Looking back at what we thought we knew. And I'm sorry, let me start again. Sorry. Looking back at what we knew and thought we knew, who we were and thought we were before the appearance of this intruder, this thief? How did they get in? When did they get here? What would they have taken had we not found them? Early detection, we were complimented, is one of the keys to success. But how did they get a key? How long had they planned to stay? Where would they go next, stretching out and taking what they could? There will be scars, we were warned, inside and out. But the main thing is what you've done, and the next is what you're doing now and going to do forever. All precautions and preventions possible to keep them from returning. Changing the locks, double-checking the windows, leaving the light on. Now that ignorance, or is it innocence, is gone, replace not with wisdom, only the constant reminder of what is so precious, of what is too brief. Thank you. Yeah, excellent. Great channeling of uh, the tones, too, of Jamaica Baldwin's, and great wisdom in that uh, in that statement, too. Thanks for sharing that, Doug. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, it was Doug Silver with The End of Ignorance is Not Wisdom. Um, next, uh, next up is uh, Paul Mitchell Bernstein. Some, hey, Tim. Hey, everyone. Hey, Paul. Good to see you. Good to see you. Uh... Yeah, so um, I'm glad you said we could share two because I, I wrote two. I'd love to share them both. Uh, I think at the top is um, the end of this thing is not my thing, which is a um, a nonce inspired by Dick Westheimer. Mm-hmm. It's a combination of a Shakespearean sonnet and um, and a guzzle. And I think I followed all the rules except for the iambic pentameter. Oh, very cool. Uh, I'm trying to find, though, uh, let's see. Do you um, not see the email? Yeah, I'm not seeing the, the poem here. Let's see. Maybe I'll let me check the Hmm. Did you submit it or did you email it? I emailed it in the text. I could redo it. Uh, you could come see. back to me. Yeah, why don't you that's weird. I wonder if um hmm. I actually emailed it um about fifteen minutes before the podcast started, so hmm. let's see. Maybe. Uh, yeah, I just didn't get it. So email again to promptlines at rattle.com. Yeah, let me try again. Okay. Um, 
Let's see. And that'll take a second. So let's swing back to you after we talk to uh, Nancy Tanel instead. Hey. hey well, Nancy. I did the shakes. Hi there. I did the Shakespearean form. Uh, I love the challenge of this. And, and it allowed me to explore um, one of my favorite topics, which is people who live in the past and should not be doing that. So the title of this is The End of Then Is Not Now. Got it right here. Yeah, excellent. Let's go. Let's hear it. N nostalgia works its magic once again. And from the past, the images appear reminding me of life as it was then when hopeful dreams eradicated fear at times it is not healthy to look back and cling to blurred remembrance of events we see as rose the char and smudge of black we push away all hints of discontent the past entices lures us from today it offers thoughts that we must disallow. Nostalgia, when excessive, brings decay. The end of what was then cannot be now. The songs of spring in silence rest. Their echoes are our winter's guest. I love that closing couplet, especially. The songs of spring in silence rest. Their echoes are our winter's guest. Yeah, great. Thanks for sharing that, Nancy. All right. You're welcome. And uh, let's go back to Paul Mitchell Bernstein. And Paul, I have to apologize. I had both the old one and the new one open, and I closed the the old uh, the new one, and I thought I closed the old one. So I do have uh, your sonnet here. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, we do. So and you have the two you sent, which is perfect as well. Yeah, awesome. Okay, uh, so I... yeah, do you, well, you want to read okay. the top one first? And how did you go about like my the, my trouble with this uh, with this prompt? It was hard to figure out like what. Um, to fill in those blanks did something just pop into your head or uh or, or i don't know that uh, seemed actually the challenge most challenging part and then once you did it for me the poem kind of wrote itself yeah i don't know the one I, the one i wrote first is sort of a fun one and it's the um it's uh the combination of the shakespearean sonnet and the guzzle and um i can't really say how it came to me but it was it, um yeah, I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't remember. You know, it's funny. We're talking about, um, you know, I have this thing when I write, you know, I work on a poem for a while and then I kind of, I do, like once it's finished, I do lose interest in it in a mm -hmm. way. Like I move, you know, like I kind of forget. Yeah, me too. For, that's for sure. <laughs> I think I, it's just because I, I write a lot and I move on to new things and I mm -hmm. sort of can't keep it in my head for too long. Um, but yeah, uh, um, the end of this thing is not my thing was the first one. And then the end of faith is not pride. It was based on a, a conversation. Um, and I think maybe I was listening to some Leonard Cohen at the time, but I don't know, but you know, the way I struggled, you know, Dick mentioned it, he, when he posted his, that what he was going to do, the combination, you know, the challenge was, you know, how do you do both? And then um, indicate the turn, mm -hmm. like he was saying, you know, those last, you know, the last ones. And so I tried to do it in a few ways. Um, one by um i you know i put the guzzle uh refrain in parentheses and i moved them from right to left and then it you know i indicated the you turn know, I they start to move the other direction so i tried to indicate the turn visually um as well as in the poem just as many ways as i could mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, but I don't want to ramble too long. <laughs> well, sounds good. Let's hear. The end of this thing is not my thing. We're really interested in okay, hearing the that. The end of this thing is not my thing. I was born with this thing between my legs. This thing. They called it boy. They cut it and sucked it. Yeah, that thing. School was strange, serious, no dicking around. A teacher took my friend to the closet, touched his thing. On a trip to the zoo when I was six, a girl I didn't know pointed to a monkey and said, that's his thing. First girl I ever kissed when I was eight, Kate, she kissed me, then slapped me and kicked me in my thing. A heavy thing, sex and death. There is nothing less cliche, even in a highway rest stop toilet. Yeah, that thing, my dingaling, a big hit, blackberries, slap it on the turntable, don't scratch it. One last thing, things swing. You can be anything, my thing, yeah, you can just call it PMB, your thing. Oh, that was great. I, you know, I'm surprised. Turning the, those uh, gazelles into sonnets worked really well. That was a really good use of it. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. Um, and yeah, then, so the uh, next one is pretty straight. It's a pretty straight Shakespearean sonnet. Um, and it's about loss of faith. Um, it's called The End of Faith is Not Pride. And... Um, it starts with a quote from Leonard Cohen. A million candles burning for the love that never came. We've done our best to keep our word in hand, to write it down with every passing hour. Poets, as we strike out across the land, to cage the rain, the love, the pain, the flower. You leave us to their hearts of violent lust. I give to you to see us in our cast, to do with us the things you feel are just. Be swift with us, the only grace of you I ask. Sorry, that's an old version kind of creeping into a new version. <laughs> be swift, the be swift, the only grace of you I ask. But tired the weight it lay on our shoulders and burn the winds it whip across our face. As dark gets darker and cold gets colder, we warm ourselves with all things in their place. But look, where is the help you said you'd send? Why should we ever trust in you again? Uh, that's that's excellent too. The end of faith is not after pride by Paul Mitchell Bernstein, and uh, and also the uh, the end of this thing is not my thing uh, by Paul. Thanks so much for sharing those, Paul. Thank you guys. Yeah, and really, I mean, this is why I love formal poems and sonnets. That's why I'm excited when we get sonnets as submissions because they sound so great to my ear. Uh, let's see, uh, Stephen Allen is a sonneteer. Not that that rhymes. Hey, Stephen, how you doing? Hi there. Yeah, good to see you. Hi. And I know you're going to have a good sonnet because you, uh, I know you write a lot of sonnets. Yep. And this time I've written a sonnet about sonnets. Ah, the meta sonnet. <laughs> Getting meta poetic here. Excellent. Let Do me, you have uh, it up? Yeah, I've got it up. Go ahead. Uh, okay. The end of the sonnet is not the closing couplet. You'd think the snap of the rhyme would be firmly final, a closure like sutures stitching up a cut, a neat little stop, something appealing to primal desires for doors that slam completely shut, a way to say, so there it is, the end, a finitude because infinity scares, a package tightly wrapped, ready to send out to the reader, as if the reader cares, there's always another poem. A single ending doesn't matter much in the grander scheme. 
But still, the terminal words, by mending or rending the scrim of thought, can plant the seeds of a dream that leaves the dreamer wide awake and burning, haunted in the early hours of morning. Oh, that's great. I love that, too. Thanks for sharing that. That was uh, Stephen Allen. And, and Stephen, what is it, what is it about? Because I know you write a lot of sonnets. So what is it about the sonnet in particular that, that draws you to it? Um, in some ways, that's just how the... The inspiration comes. I more often than not will come up with a first line that's in iambic pentameter, and it seems a very natural way to go from that. I also write a lot of of blank verse. Mm-hmm. Um, don't submit much of it because I tend to ramble on and <laughs> rather pointlessly. So maybe the answer is it keeps you from rambling. <laughs> yep. Yeah, in a way it does. It provides a way to uh, provide control. Yeah. Well, very cool. Well, thanks for sharing that one. Another excellent example and uh, and good lesson, too, in how to write a successful one. Thanks for sharing that, Stephen. Thank you. Yep. That was uh, The End of the Sonnet is Not the Closing Couplet by Stephen Allen. Uh, let's go to Nate Jacob next. <clears throat> good evening. Hey, Nate. Good to see you. Hey, as a uh, true American, I went ahead and abandoned all rules uh, well there you go even the 14 <laughs> lines uh, you know no, I, I kept the 14 <laughs> lines <laughs> this is a 32 line american sonnet <laughs> i did in fact write a 28 line double sonnet uh-huh. but i didn't submit it to you <laughs> it seemed a bit much okay. uh, however i do have a double title a double title too just breaking all the rules can't even yeah, stick to one i couldn't handle it <laughs> all right so uh you you do have it right i yep, sent it I to you yep go ahead the end of innocence is not in your memories, or the end of Manhattan is not as close as you think. Commit this all to memory. The smell of the Waldorf closet, the way shaky Tad at the desk kept touching your forearm, and the fear you had being in New York City for the first time, when air became tarmac, became taxi, became sidewalk. Remember the sound of the curtain rising on Broadway, how the entire theater fell silent in that expensive darkness. The hippie placed an apple fritter in your innocent palm, a tiny maraca in your lap, and you waited to see others eating and shaking before you ate and shook. Remember emerging from that dank side exit alley like a newborn, certain you could smell your own scalp, so in love with the world You even tried the halal food cart on the corner of 6th and 50th. You always share the things you don't like. Remember me having your kebab, not your Coke? I remember the Coke. (laughs) Oh, that's great. I love the title, too. Uh, The end of Manhattan is not as close as you think. It's such a great, so accurate, having tried to walk from one end to the other. It's a long way. We mistakenly did it late at night once, uh, Mm -hmm. our first time there. Yeah, (laughs) a very interesting memory and great, uh, great American sonnet, I have to say. Thanks for sharing that, Nate. Thank you. Yep, there's uh, Nate Jacob with uh, The End of Innocence is Not Your Memories or The End of Manhattan is Not as Close as You Think. Um, Next is Zachary Honeycutt. Hey, Tim. How's hey, it going, man? Good. How you doing? I'm doing great. So I managed to squeeze out a Shakespearean sonnet today, but I say squeeze out because I did not have as much time to write as I usually do, and I kind of cranked it today, but uh-huh. it came out good, so I'm happy well, with it. Those are the best kinds, the ones that come pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, this is called The End of Play is Not Work. 
a working man's sonnet. Interesting. Okay. I played in dirt all day today, digging big holes with a small ego. Grade men dumping concrete, a motley array of minds and hands bumping elbows, toes stepped on and bent with no recompense nor trace of relent, pouring cement slow down holes amidst autumn's winter's pleasance. What a presence, hauntingly grand gifts, no warm cold like churches with snow on their roofs, but bitter blows of wind can't rescind work like play. When we talk, every talk, caulk all grooves in between boards of homes we fenced with a smirk. But then I stop. What makes it all worthwhile? At night, I'll see your beautiful smile. Oh, that is great. Thanks for sharing that. And of course, always the rhymes are just wonderful in your sonnet sack and, uh, and in all your poems. Great internal rhymes, too, as well as the end. And uh, landed on some love as well. Very interesting. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, that. sweet, sweet poem after all my dark. I know. I, poems. I was trying to think if I've ever heard a sweet one before from you. So now there's a, there's at least yeah. a first time for everything. I'm sure there are more. Though. Thanks for sharing that, Zach. Yeah. See you guys next week. Bye bye. Yeah. Zachary Honeycutt with um, the end of play is not work. A working man's sonnet, sonnet twenty five too. We should note. Um, next, let's go to Monica Dobos. All right. Hello, everyone. Hey, Monica. Good to see you. Same here. Uh, <clears throat> I have to say I'm sorry about my voice because I have a cold. As, as my son says, if you have something important to say, say it before six o'clock when before mom starts coffee. <laughs> that's a good idea. I hope that's not going to yeah, happen. Well, I'm getting over mine. I had one for the critique of the week and I'm I'm like totally fine, except for the voice is still, you know, a little bit maybe here. Um, but I feel great. But uh, hopefully you yeah. feel great again soon. And I'm so happy I was able to write another prom poem. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, me too. Considering I'm not very good at prompts. Uh, it's probably not a sonnet, but it goes anyway. <laughs> okay. The end of dill pickles, as found on, at Sprouts, two rows down to your left, is not the beginning of beats, an American preteen sonnet. Nothing beats dill pickles, says my son, opening the fridge door and picking up from the floor the Tignat find peace and joy now magnet, which luckily for him doesn't break, as that would aggravate me because I got it from Deer Park on the very day Ty visited the monastery and gave a beautiful speech on letting go in three steps. The first step, awareness. Realizing there are no dill pickles in the fridge, followed by not slamming the door, which displays multiple fragile peace magnets. Step two, insight. Explaining to my son that the refrigerator is not an infinite source of pickles. Otherwise, we would prostrate to a cold metal tasting God and resurrect cucumbers. The third and final step, acceptance creating a new, equally healthy habit of eating condiments. I suggest pickled beets, rich in iron, 0.70 milligrams, sodium, 270 milligrams, and sugar, 91 grams per 32-ounce jar, which we open long before the dill pickle one, and we don't waste. Step four, 
keeping your sense of humor when he reminds you for the hundredth time that beets don't go with toasted cheese sandwich, which escapes me. And why don't I finish the the beets once and for all since they're round and red and sweet and smell like Earth is having her period? And what's wrong with curls anyway? At which I grab a peace magnet and hold to it tight like a kiss. Oh, that was wonderful. And, and I think you um, out American to Nate Jacobs with that prose poem sonnet. <laughs> That's really neat uh, from Monica. Monica Moo or Monica Dobo? Should I, what should I say? Because they're both names come up a lot. <laughs> well, Do- Dobosh actually uh, is my maiden name. Uh, my dad was Hungarian. Mm-hmm. And Dobosh is also like a, an amazing chocolate cake, if you ever want to look that up. Uh-huh. So Monica Moo, because I have an obsession with cows. That's like my poet's nickname. Gotcha. Okay, so the poem is by Monica Moo. The poem is by Monica. <laughs> Talking to Monica Dobosh. Thanks so much for joining us, Monica. That was really fun. I love the details and the, the humor and the fun of that. Thanks for sharing it. Thank you. Yep, there's uh, Monica Moo with the end of pi- dill pickles as found at Sprouts. Two rolls down to your left is not the beginning of Beats, an American preteen sonnet. That's a great title as well. Uh, next, let's go to Mary Keating. Hi, Mary. Hi. Nice to be here again. Yeah, great to have you again. Yeah. So um, I wrote an American Sun. It tried to keep an amic pentameter, but not. Oh, I think your mic may be muted. You're... Oh, you muted on, on Zoom. So there you go. Sorry. Okay, Sorry. no problem. <laughs> so you tried to so keep it in amic pentameter. But... Yeah, amic pentameter, you were saying. Right. So it's called um, The End of Sickness <clears throat> is Not Dead. All right. Symptoms assuaged again after battles, but still danger lurks in x-ray shadows. Permanent uniform, cut, torn, and sewn. Parts missing, malfunctioning, overgrown. And though I can no longer stand, I rise above the hours that stretch my spirit beyond what would rip most people apart as I beg the heavens for sleep's relief. Like the waters of Lethe, to forget my body bound to a hospital bed with antibiotics and prednisone dripping elixirs into open threads. Soon more scars will adorn me like badges, reminders. My body's worn, but still not dead. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I love that. And again, another example, I just love science as a form. It makes everything come to life. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you. Yeah, that was Mary Keating, where the end of sickness is not dead. Um, all right, and next let's go to Brian O'Sullivan. Hey, Brian. Hey, so I'm in the uh, guzzle group. The, um, the more guzzle group. Uh, kind of so we should say. I sophisticated think, and we had, um, as some of the other ones. It's just 14 lines in a guzzle. Well, the, um, uh, I think people might not know that we did, you know, Katie and I do the poetry yeah. space, and we did a poetry space on guzzles, had some great contributions from Rattle contributors, yeah. um, uh, Shannon Mann and Karen Kapoor. Um, you know, Brian O'Sullivan was there. Uh, Joe Barker was there as other people as well and uh, talked a lot about the guzzle. So I think that's the inspiration for all these guzzle sonnets combining the two shows that we've done last week. Very interesting. Um, so, so uh, yeah, so, f- so it's basically like seven um, couplets of the guzzle becomes a sonnet. And, and it's interesting to think of it that way. And I, a lot of people had this really interesting idea. And I was particularly interested in what Shannon was saying about Shannon Mann was saying about, um, as I heard it, how irreverent uh, a guzzle can be, how playful it can be, also how chant-like it is. And I probably took that 
too far, um, but it's an experiment. <laughs> okay, let's um, hear it. Yeah. So it's called The End of Childhood is Not Maturity. <laughs> yeah, great um, title. Thanks. Here, stick the end of this hose in your muzzle and guzzle up. The cold ones will pour down the funnel. Guzzle. My throat constricts, then opens. Cunningham, grinning, stops golden bud into the dark, winding tunnel. Guzzle! The night is cold and the beer is colder. All around, all the young and thirsty crew were chanting. Guzzle! Guzzle! <laughs> Our clunkers squat in St. Greg's parking lot. There is Chuck's pride, his 69 gold Impala, a bad gas guzzler. Guzzle! Shep, our stub-tailed hound friend, runs out to headbutt our buddy Denise, who smiles but keeps chanting as Shep, nuz as Shep nuzzles. Guzzle! I still can smell and taste that metallic mix of beer and fear in sharp air and in my freezing throat when I guzzled, guzzled. Thinking back, I almost need a drink, for I face a hard puzzle. Guzzle, guzzle. Have I got the Brian cells left to write a guzzle, guzzle? <laughs> That's great. I really love that, Brian. That's a lot of fun. And that is the thing. Uh, you know, if anybody wants to listen, it's the poetry space. Just type that into, you know, Spotify or iTunes or whatever, Amazon Music, it'll show up. And um, that's the thing I learned a lot, too. I learned a lot in the poetry space generally. And I uh, didn't realize how much fun was part of the, the guzzle form, too. It's a lot more, we think of it as like the um, Middle Eastern sonnet, kind of. But the truth is, it's more like the, the old ballads from, like, you know, playing and entertaining and, and having fun in the court. And um, and and that's how they work. And there's actually a lot of contemporary songs are in the guzzle form. It's a really common way to write, just like the ballad. So it's much more balladish and more ballad playful too. It's really interesting to learn about. Um, so yeah, everybody should check that out. And I really love the playfulness there. That was a lot of fun, Brian. Yep, take care. As Brian O'Sullivan with a great title too, "The End of Childhood Is Not Maturity." <laughs> and um, let's see, Mary Lisa Denominatius is next. There I am. Yeah, Hi. there you are. Hey, Mary Lisa, great seeing you. Hi, you too. Um, great fun. I uh, really enjoyed your guzzle um, talk on on Twitter. Uh -huh. X, whatever they're calling whatever it. They, yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, whatever they're doing over there. Um, but I do go over on Thursdays to listen, so um, it's always fun. Oh, always great. a lot of fun. I am pulling it up. So this is a Pespensirian sonnet, but oh. I kind of played around with it. It's got mm -hmm. dangling lines, I call them. Uh -huh. So instead of um, 14 lines, it's got 15 to 18 lines. Okay. Well, looking forward and to hearing it. And looking at the form, too, which I haven't really heard of. Maybe one you've invented. Oh, yeah. The, no, no. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, the Pespen, the Pespensirian sonnet mm -hmm. is uh, three quatrains, A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, and C, D, C, D. Mm-hmm. And then the couplet is E E. And then so it's 14 lines. Usually iambic pentameter, but I'm sure my meter forget about meter. It's just not gonna happen for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and then it it has to have a turn in thought or direction. And the stanzas are end stopped. Mm -hmm. So I don't think mine are end stopped. Though. No. <laughs> no. That's I have a hard time constraining myself with sonnets. Okay. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to hearing it. Yeah. And, and, all right. and me... adding an extra line to each is really interesting, too. So let's, <laughs> with dangling lines, let's hear it. I'm all, it's always too much. Okay. <laughs> the end of the song, the end of the song is not the end of the story. In part because it felt so strange to kiss it. I kissed the tall wooden cross. In part to test myself. 
How humble could I be? To propitiate, submit, admit a need for a God in the midst of a congregation? I have to kiss the cross, I asked and grumbled. At the foot of the altar of my neighborhood church, I grumbled under my breath to my husband about it. I mumbled that I'd never done it, but I would do it. I was afraid of not belonging and of belonging, afraid I would crumble under the mighty invisible fist of a God I daily prayed, existed, but doubted considering how many others prayed and received no answer. These kisses, were they meant to persuade God to pay us more attention, special consideration? Were they given to prove our love, our devotion? Were our kisses made to prod a preoccupied God to love us back? Were our kisses driven by want of protection, by want or need? I have been driven to kiss wooden trees without prod and for want of no gain. I have kissed the air for simply being and the terrain. Without elaborate display, I kiss rain and risen, I sing. Oh, I love that form. That is so good. I love the way that you added to that and, and included the rhymes all the way throughout. Yeah. That's a really neat form. I like it. Oh, that means so much to me. Thank you so much. Yeah. I had a lot of fun with it. <laughs> Katie, these prompts rock. <laughs> they rock. Oh, Thank that's you. great. Well, <laughs> thanks, yeah, thanks so much for Lisa. Um, it's a good example too of um, you know you're writing about certain things. You have themes that you've been in your writing, but adding the prompt to that is a, a way to open it up and explore new so territory much. in that. So yeah, I'm so grateful for that. Thank oh, you. Well, very cool. Thanks so much, Mary Lisa. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's Mary Lisa Denominatius with uh, the end of song. End of the song is not the end of the story. Let's swing it back to our uh, prompt poems editor. Katie Dozier. Hey, Katie, you still there? Hi, we convinced you American Sonnets are amazing, didn't we? Way to go, team! <laughs> well, I do I do like the container. It's a good length <laughs> for a poem. It, it is. Does. It forces you to get somewhere fast, or else yeah. you're not going to have any lines left to write in. Yeah, that's true. It really does. And it gets the turn in there. It makes you have to move, uh, which is really important, as we all know. <laughs> um, so, for next week's prompt, um, what have you got for us? I do not have a document open in front of me. You're going to have to tell us what I have. Well, I will tell you what you have, and that is right here. Write a how-to poem about something you don't know how to do. So um, a bit open-ended, a lot of room to play with that one. Write a how-to poem about something you don't know how to do. Uh, that'll be yeah. next week's prompt. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm really excited to write this, and even though, like, we only came up with this prompt today. The, the ideas are already starting to come to me. I think that, you know, if we say that there's discovery in a poem, well, there's no more discovery than uh, not knowing how to do something, but telling people how to do, which is what a lot of people do all the time. So. Exactly. It really is. You know, fake it till you make it. So just how to do brain surgery. You know, we could we could figure it out. All you need is the poem. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, so I forgot to say, too, um, and I'll put on screen just so you can see what the poetry space looks like. But the poetry space is Thursdays at uh, 3 p.m. Eastern time. And this week we're going to have the second time an open mic, um, but an open mic in particular about thankful poems, a thankful open mic for Thanksgiving. Uh, that's going to be uh, November 16th, the Thursday. Uh, if you want to find it at uh, Katie Dozier, Katie under at Katie underscore Dozier. And uh, the X platform is where to join live if you'd like to share any poems about thankfulness or gratitude on the open lines. Uh, wh why do you think it's important, Katie, to have gratitude in poems? Well, I would say, first of all, that it makes you a better poet. Oh. 
I think that, you know, during the interview when you're talking about haiku and gratefulness and how important it is when you, when you notice something on that level, I think that's when you can really write at your best. At least that's where my best poems come from is, is from a place of thankfulness and gratitude ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. You know, it's noticing what to appreciate, even, even, even in the darkness, you know, the, the dark yeah. things to do, it's still gratitude and uh perfect for this time of year. So your thankfulness poems, uh, that'll be on uh, Thursday's Poetry Space. Yeah, thanks, Katie. Yeah, I just wish we were all going to have Thanksgiving together the next week. But in senior, we'll have a Thanksgiving. <laughs> Giant Thanksgiving. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. Well, yeah. we'll talk to you soon, of course. Talk to you later, All right. Katie. Thank you. All right, bye. Bye. That was Katie Tozer, our prompt poems editor. And uh, let's really quickly close out with the Saiku. And uh, the haiku, or saiku, I should say, is based on this interesting article. I'll try to get the thing on the screen because you'll want to see this creature. This is a, um, uh, what is it called again? It's a, um, uh, i got to scroll down for the name, Attenborough's Long-Beaked Echidna. Um, it's a super rare animal. It was once described in the wild 60 years ago, never before been caught on film in the Cyclops Mountains of um of uh, indonesia's papua province that's where it is and um so this is the uh this team of scientists from oxford university went out and, and really interacted with a tribe spent a long time um dealing with the people you know befriending and, and helping getting help from the people who live there um in that indonesian island and um and, and they've cataloged all these different animals we'd never seen and never been documented documented by science including um tree shrimp there's shrimp it's so um moist in these mountains that shrimp actually climbed up out of the ocean and started living on land in trees so you can like pick the shrimp off trees how in i mean that's just really interesting so anyway um that was this research um out of the university of oxford and uh, and that is a attenborough's long-beaked echidna, which if you're just watching home, it's related to the duck-billed platypus too. It's one of only a few extant species of um, egg-laying mammals. And it looks like your ideal like stuffed animal with a bird's beak. It's really strange and um, has sort of the spine of a hedgehog, lays eggs, has a bird's beak. Uh, really strange. Just kind of wanders around this mountain there. And uh, so here is your Saiku inspired by that story. Billions of branches caught on the trail cam billions of branches caught on the trail cam that is your saiku for the week that is the show for the week thanks everybody for joining me it was really a great episode i really loved uh, every segment of it so thanks for participating and making a part of your evening or later on afternoon wherever you happen to be now next week's guest in the rattlecast is going to be uh, carrie shapers and carrie's just a wonderful poet has published a whole bunch of books in the last i think she's got like six books in the last 10 years her most recent is Griefland. we've published her a few times too including the most recent issue of rattle she'll be the guest for rattlecast number 220 monday november 20th alongside the prompt lines with your how-to poems about things you don't know how to do uh, that'll be Monday, November 20th, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week. In the meantime, I'll talk to you later. Goodbye.